guys how glorious is the mercy of our Lord uh, what a powerful way to enter into that song that I am the wretch you treasured wow anyone else when they were a kid though heard like uh, who saved a wretch like me I thought they were seeing saying wrench for a long time so even still I think like I am the wrench wrench you treasured and so I don't know if that's anyone else's experience, but it was mine. So, wretch, wrench, he saved us. He treasured us. So, thank the Lord for that. Hey, today we're continuing in our Everyday People series, our study uh, of Ruth's story. The book of Ruth we find in the Bible, tucked between the ju Judges and the Samuels. 
uh, the story of Ruth and Naomi, of Ruth and Boaz, and ultimately the story of God and His people. The story of Jesus and His love for the church. Uh, this is week number seven in an eight-part series, so one more after this. Uh, this Sunday is called, or today is called, uh, Justice. The title of this message is called Justice. In our world, this is something I've discovered. In our world, I have found that injustice speaks loudly, while justice speaks quietly. Injustice speaks loudly, while justice speaks quietly and subtly, and this can be really frustrating. Right? Why? Why is that so frustrating to us? Why is it frustrating when we find that injustice just like dominates the headlines, it dominates the environment, yet tones of justice are so quiet? Why does that frustrate us? I think it, here's my take on it, I think it taps into something very deep inside of us as humans. We want perpetrators of violence, of racism, of hatred, we want them publicly and loudly punished. We feel vindicated when the perpetrators of injustice are punished. And the more public, the more loud, the better, right? Something in us wants there to be resounding vindication of those who are harmed and those who are oppressed. Something in us resonates with that desire. We, we kind of want an eye for an eye. We want a tooth for a tooth. We want a life for a life when unfair things happen. Or things like racism or religious persecution persist. When you read that part in the Old Testament, we're like, sounds fair enough to me. If you kill somebody, you get killed. If you poke someone's eye out, you poke your own eye out, or someone pokes your eye out. Yeah, I mean, we get that symmetry. We like that. We want perpetrators of injustice punished. That feels like justice. Just in this past year, think about it. Just in this past year, how many black men have been killed? How many black men have been killed? How many lives have been destroyed by the deep-seated and lingering specter of racism in the United States? I think we all wish that it was not that way, but it's still there. The, 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 the playing field is still tilted against people of color. How much anger and frustration and grief has coursed through your veins over this past year? Racial injustice has indeed become a very public source of outrage in the media and on the streets, in cities and towns, large and small. Guys, at the height of the, the George Floyd protests, there were even protests in Bolivar, Missouri. <laughs> Guys, how far reaching does the outrage have to be to reach to Bolivar, Missouri? I mean, that's a small town. All around the state of Missouri, there were little towns with protests over this eruption, this spasm of racial injustice in our time. It surprised us. It appalled us. But there it was. And so we reacted. Deep inside of us, there is an intense desire to see injustice answered. It's not okay for injustice to go unanswered. Something inside of us demands that injustice be answered with some sort of justice, and thus there is an immense pressure placed on all of us to say something, to read something, or to do something. Have you felt that pressure? Try standing in a pastor's shoes. How much expectation is put upon you to say this, read that, do that? Man, it's crazy. 
It's as if in the presence of pervasive injustice, we are desperate and we will do anything to feel like we are part of the solution. We are desperate to feel like we're part of the solution, any solution, and we're also desperate to make others do the same. We want to feel like we're doing our part, and part of that doing our part is making others comply. So, we share the news article. We retweet the tweet. We repost the post. We wear the t-shirt. We hold the sign in order to air our grievance, to signal that we are appalled. We do not want to be silent, because if we remain silent, we feel complicit. We feel like if we don't say something, we are complicit in that injustice. So what's going on here? What's going on here in the, in the midst of all this noise and chaos and friction and tension that we've found over the past year? I think the situations we've discovered and witnessed and been a part of this year point to, among other things, a deep sense of frustration. I think it points to our frustration with and our sense of helplessness in the, in the face of a society beset by sin. It's our frustration and our helplessness when we come up against and we see clearly a society beset by sin and a human community that is broken by a lack of love. Can we all agree that we've seen that this past year? Man, sin lingers all around us, in us. This human community is scarred and broken by a lack of love. Something inside each and every one of us cries out for justice and cries out for healing. We've grown weary of seeing people like Ahmaud Arbery and George Floyd mistreated so badly. We see that and we know it's just not right. Mistreated so badly, men like this devalued as human beings. Fellow humans, image bearers, chased down, held down, and killed like less than people. Does this bother you? I mean, once we, once we delaminate this issue from all the politics and all the, 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 the partisanship and all the, the, the crazy headlines, at root, as people of Jesus, stuff like this should cause our hearts to ache. These men, these women this past year, and this is just one example, right? We see it happen and we know deep in our core that this ought not be because that man that lies on the ground bleeding to death or starving for air, he is an image bearer. God has put his image just as much into him as he's put his image into me and, and into you. And, and, and to make matters worse, our categories for explaining and for understanding these entrenched social ills like racism, they feel inadequate. They don't feel like they do enough to really sort through it and bring order to it. They feel inadequate in making sense of these kind of grievous events. So what do we do? Well, unhelpfully, we often resort to oversimplifying. We, we resort to categorizing, generalizing, labeling, blaming, shaming, and demonizing and what results is a more and more polarized society. And at a personal level, it's emotionally exhausting. Guys, the way things are, we can't keep it up forever. It wears us out. 
So what are we to do? How do we be faithful to our calling in Jesus Christ and how do we go out into our world and raise our voice for justice? How do we raise our voice for justice? Can we do more than just post things on social media? Man, I hope so. Can we do more than just march in a protest or wear a t-shirt and then go about our day feeling absolved of any real responsibility? Oh man, I hope so. I think we can. And thankfully, we have Scripture. We have Jesus' demonstration for us of what it means to live out the good news, to live out the gospel in the world. Here's what I think. I believe the gospel points us in a healed and helpful direction in areas just like this. The incarnation, Jesus coming to live among us, His life, His death, and His resurrection, it compels us then to enter into, just like He did, enter into the violence and death of our world and bring about hope and healing and new life. Dallas Willard, in his book called The Divine Conspiracy, has anyone ever read The Divine Conspiracy? Oh, sweet fancy, it's a good book. You should read it. Dallas Willard provides a helpful starting point for us. He has this phrase that kind of takes the bumper sticker, uh, what is it, uh, perform or do random acts of kindness and senseless acts of beauty. He kind of takes it and like turns it on its head and I think corrects it. He says, practice routinely purposeful kindness and intelligent acts of beauty. Practice routinely purposeful kindness and intelligent acts of beauty. Why does he do this? Why did he feel like it was important to put that in his book? I think it's because of this. We have to be careful about settling for random acts of kindness. Settling for senseless acts of beauty. Why? Because they quickly devolve into self-serving niceness. Does this happen to you too? We can turn even the most beautiful and loving things inward and make them about ourselves. So if it's senseless, if it's random, man, it's all mine. I'm going to put my name on it, right? We can, it quickly devolves into self-serving niceness, simply pandering to our need to feel good and to look good. There must be intention. There must be a tangible, identifiable meaning in what we set out to do. Not just a scattershot good intentions, but focused effort, specific work to bring healing and to right a wrong. So how does this land in our lap then? Well, it starts by doing this, and this is technical, so pay attention. Look around. Just pay attention and look around. You're surrounded by opportunities to speak for justice in our world. Look around. Who needs you? Who's already in your life? Who needs you to speak up for justice? How can you help? What is broken right where you are? How can you speak the gospel, the healing of the gospel, into that situation? That's where we could start. We all want to change the world. We all want to change the world, but it must start locally. It must start right here. It must start with me. It must start with you. And guys, that's freeing in a way, isn't it? It's just what you can do where you are right now. That's where it begins. Mother Teresa, or Mama T, as we like to call her, reminds us of this truth. Not all of us can do great things, but we can all do small things with great love. 
Not all of us can do great things, but we can all do small things with great love. Man, I love her perspective. We can all find those small things around us waiting to be spoken to, waiting to be healed, and we can do that thing with great love. Can you do that this week? I think you can. The crash and discord of injustice will be overcome only by the steady and clear notes of justice, kindness, and beauty being practiced purposefully by God's people every day as a reflection of what Jesus has done for us all. That's the only way true injustice will be truly overcome. When we go out daily, consistently, incarnating the good news of Jesus Christ into our world. So, in returning to our story of Ruth, we come to the crux of the story. The crux of the story. Ruth, a Moabite widow, has boldly approached Boaz, and she's essentially asked him to marry her. Pretty bold. She's approached and said, hey, cover me with your garment, take me in, make me your wife. Do it. <laughs> He's like, oh, okay. <laughs> He's asked, she has asked him to marry her, to take her into his protection, and to save her from a life of uncertainty, isolation, and a barren, fruitless future. So, if you have your Bible, you can turn to Ruth chapter 3. Let's, start, let's join the story in Ruth chapter 3, verse 1. One day, Naomi said to Ruth, My daughter, it is time that I found a permanent home for you so that you will be provided for. Boaz is a close relative of ours, and he's been very kind by letting you gather grain with his young women. Tonight, he will be winnowing barley at the threshing floor. Now, do as I tell you. Take a bath and put on perfume and dress in your nicest clothes. Then go to the threshing floor, but don't let Boaz see you until he has finished eating and drinking. Be sure to notice where he lies down. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down there. He will tell you what to do. I will do everything you say, Ruth replied. So she went down to the threshing floor that night and followed the instructions of her mother-in-law. After Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he lay down at the far end of the pile of grain and went to sleep. Then Ruth came quietly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. Around midnight, Boaz suddenly woke up and turned over. He was surprised to find a woman lying at his feet. Who are you? he asked. I'm your servant, Ruth. She said, spread the corner of your covering over me, for you are my, my family redeemer. Or your Bible might say kinsman redeemer. The Lord bless you, my daughter, Boaz exclaimed. You are showing even more family loyalty than you did before, for you, are not gone, you have not gone after a younger man, whether rich or poor. Now don't worry about a thing, my daughter. I will do what is necessary, for everyone in town knows you are a virtuous woman. But while it's true that I am one of your family redeemers, there is another man who is more closely related to you than I am. So stay here tonight, and in the morning I will talk to him. If he is willing to redeem you, very well. Let him marry you. But if he was not willing, then as surely as the Lord lives, I will redeem you myself! Exclamation point. Now lie down here until morning. So Ruth lay at Boaz's feet until the morning, but she got up before it was light enough for people to recognize each other. For Boaz had said, No one must know that a woman was here at the threshing floor. Then Boaz said to her, Bring your cloak and spread it out. He measured six scoops of barley into the cloak and placed it on her back. Then he returned to the town. When Ruth went back to her mother-in-law, Naomi asked, What happened, my daughter? And Ruth told Naomi everything Boaz had done for her. And she added, He gave me these six scoops of barley and said, Don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Then Naomi said to her, Just be patient, my daughter, until we hear what happens. The man won't rest until he has settled things today. Chapter 4. 
Boaz went to the town gate and took a seat there. Just then the family redeemer he had mentioned came by. So Boaz called out to him, Come over here and sit down, friend. I want to talk to you. So they sat down together. Then Boaz called ten leaders from the town and asked them to sit as witnesses. And Boaz said to the family redeemer, You know Naomi, who came back from Moab? She is selling the land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. I thought I should speak to you about it so that you can redeem it if you wish. If you want the land, then buy it here in the presence of these witnesses. But if you don't want it, let me know right away because I am next in line to redeem it after you. And the man replied, All right, I'll redeem it. Then Boaz told him, Of course, your person... <laughs> This is kind of funny in a biblical kind of way. Um, then Boaz told him, Of course, your purchase of the land from Naomi also requires that you marry Ruth, the Moabite widow. <laughs> Bait and switch. Um, that way she can have children who will, marry, who will carry on her husband's name and keep the land and the family. Then I can't redeem it, the family redeemer replied, because this might endanger my own estate. You redeem the land. I cannot do it. Now in those days, it was the custom in Israel for anyone transferring a right of purchase to remove his sandal and hand it to the other party. This publicly validated the transaction. So the other family redeemer drew off his sandal as, as he said to Boaz, you buy the land. Then Boaz said to the elders and to the crowd standing around, you are witnesses that today I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilion, and Malon. And with the land I have acquired Ruth, the Moabite widow of Malon, to be my wife. This way she can have a son to carry on the family name of her dead husband and to inherit the family property here in his hometown. You are all witnesses today. Then the elders and all the people standing in the gate replied, We are witnesses. May the Lord make this woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, from whom all the nations of Israel descended. May you prosper in Ephrathah. Ephrathah, and, he, and be famous in Bethlehem. And may the Lord give you descendants by his young, this young woman, who will be like those of our ancestor Perez, the son of Tamar and Judah. So Boaz took Ruth into his home, and she became his wife. When he slept with her, the Lord enabled her to become pregnant. She gave birth to a son. Then the women of the town said to Naomi, Praise the Lord who has now provided a redeemer for your family. May this child be famous in Israel. May he restore your youth and care for you in your old age, for he is the son of your daughter-in-law who loves you and has been better to you than seven sons. Naomi took the baby and cuddled him to her breast, and she cared for him as if he were her own. The neighbor women came, or the neighbor women said, Now at last Naomi has a son again, and they named him Obed. He became the father of Jesse and the grandfather of David. Ooh. All right, so a little bit of foreshadowing there, which we'll talk about next week. But this ends in such a, a restored place, doesn't it? Such a good resolution to all the uncertainty that we've been reading about for the past several weeks. Now, because Boaz was a kinsman redeemer or a family redeemer, uh, uh, because he was Naomi's close relative, remember? He had a legal responsibility to marry the wife of a deceased brother or cousin, etc. This was his responsibility, his familial responsibility. However, in this particular situation, there was a kinsman redeemer that was closer. There was a closer relative that was to be Ruth's kinsman redeemer. This closer relative then had the first right of refusal, and Boaz understood this. He couldn't jump right in and say yes, unless the closer relative said no. 
So there was a closer relative, and he had, this closer relative had the first right of refusal. Therefore, he must be given the opportunity to marry Ruth first, if he so desires. You remember how Boaz presents is like, hey, you want some land? You want some property? You do? Well, you also have to marry Ruth. And he's like, oh, I can't do that. And he's like, sweet. <laughs> Boaz loved Ruth. He had already fallen head over heels for Ruth. He loves Ruth, but he's also an upright man. Boaz is an upright man who respects the law, and he wants to honor God, and he wants to honor Ruth, and he wants to honor the rights of his relative. Eugene Peterson kind of frames this understanding for us nicely in saying, a background theme of Ruth has to do with covenant responsibilities as they are expressed in this Redeemer obligation and the, the levirate marriage. The exact responsibilities involved in these ancient legal codes and customs is not clear. What is clear is that there were obligations, and part of the interest of the story hangs on whether Boaz will or will not meet them. Boaz could have dodged his responsibilities, apparently, and still kept his good name, since there was another in a more responsible position than he was. He could have kept the letter of the law by referring the matter uh, of Ruth to the nearer kinsman. Some people, like Boaz, get into the story by taking up their responsibilities. Some people plunge into righteous living, which models God's righteous relationships by going beyond the letter of the law and persistently and generously seeking for ways to put their wealth and position to work on behalf of others. This is really the key of what Boaz is doing. He's going beyond. He's going beyond the letter of the law. He could have just slipped into the shadows and been perfectly fine. There would have been no problem. His name would have been intact. He would have no responsibilities, but he persists. He persists. He plunges into righteous living, which models God's righteous relationships by going beyond the letter of the law and persistently and generously seeking for ways to put wealth and position to work on behalf of another. So, whatever the outcome, Boaz is determined to see Ruth cared for. He's determined. At the end of the day, I just want Ruth cared for. I want her difficult situation alleviated, and I want her days of being uprooted, bereft, and exposed, I want those days ended. So whether it's him or whether it's me, ultimately, I just want her taken care of. Now, if you've grown up in church and you've heard the, the story of Ruth before, if you've been to a women's conference, I'm sure you heard about Ruth. Um, that's what they do at women's conferences. But uh, you've heard about kinsmen redeemers. And maybe it's not as weird sounding as it was when you first heard it. But the idea of a kinsman redeemer is kind of odd. Like, just like the story of like agreeing on something and handing the other guy your sandal, we don't do that either. I think it'd be cool. I mean, <laughs> I'm all for it. But the kinsman redeemer part's a little bit weird. In our woke 21st century ears, this whole kinsman redeemer business sounds weird and culturally backwards. There's something in us that just wants to shout, Ruth, you're a strong Moabite woman. You don't need no man. Anyone else feel that? Or is it just me? Yeah, it's like, well, you don't need no kinsman redeemer. You know, I find myself unconsciously projecting 21st century America back into this, uh, what, 4th century B.C. But we have to be careful there because to do that... To let that sense or that feeling uh, override what's actually happening in the story could cause us to miss the point. 
It could cause us to miss the point, and it could cause us to impose our culture uh, to commit, uh, what, ideological colonialism, right, uh, on Ruth, uh, and yank her out of her context and out of her world. And what is lost if we do that? I don't think we can hear her story anymore if we do. The challenges and weird situations that Ruth faced in her story, they've changed because times and cultures have changed, but challenges and weird situations still exist, don't they? There are people living today in our city, in our neighborhood, <laughs> that are living in challenging and weird situations. There are people who feel exposed. People who are living feeling vulnerable and who are being treated unjustly right here. So the circumstances have changed. Yeah, the cultures have changed, but the same kind of stuff still happens. Being a good man, I get the sense that Boaz hated seeing anyone mistreated. As you read about Boaz, you get the sense that he hated it when people were mistreated, when people were shut out, when people were left on their own to simply fend for themselves. Stuff like that just really grated on Boaz. It's likely Boaz, at some level, wished that all the widows were cared for. If he could ma wave a magic wand, if he could just change the world with a word, he would say, all widows should be cared for. However, Boaz couldn't fix the whole world. Boaz couldn't fix all the widows in the world, could he? But he could do something for one widow, right? He could do something for one widow. He could fix the world for Ruth, and that matters, right? He looked around and he saw what was going on right in front of him and he decided to act. He decided to act in that situation that was right there and demanded a response from him. When presented with a chance to act, when he presented with a chance to rescue and to marry Ruth, he did. He did. He did whatever it took to take care of Ruth. When the opportunity came, Boaz chose to practice a purposeful kindness. Boaz chose to practice an, intel, an, an intelligent act of beauty, and in doing so, he painted a picture of divine care and of sacrificial loving. And it's a beautiful picture, isn't it? What we see playing out in Ruth's story is really the church's story. Ruth is a lot like us. All who come to Jesus are taken into his care by his grace, we come close and we find that we're welcomed and we are saved. Ruth's story is our story. Ruth's story is the story of the church. John Chrysostom, one of the early church fathers from the 4th century, says it this way. He says, See, for instance, what befell Ruth, how like it is to the things which belong to us. For she was both of a strange race and reduced to the utmost poverty, yet Boaz, when he saw her neither when he saw her, neither despised her poverty nor abhorred her mean birth, as Christ, having received the church, being both an alien and in much poverty, took her to be partaker of the great blessings. So when you see what Boaz did for Ruth, see that which Christ has done for each of us. He's called us in when we were alien, when we were in poverty. He called us in 
to give us a home and to save us, to give us, to make us a partaker of the great blessings. In the face of a world full of injustice and persecution and oppression, Jesus cared for us. Let that sink in. In the world that we have made, this broken place in which we live, Jesus came close and he called us to himself and he cared for us. He cared for us. By entering into our local scene and addressing our very real needs, Jesus covered us with his garment of righteousness and he made us his bride. He called us, you and me, to be his church. Boaz and Ruth's story is beautiful, but guys, our story is beautiful too because of what Jesus has done. In tangible and meaningful ways, Jesus came, acting in great love, telling a new story, speaking decisively against the world's dysfunction. Yes, Jesus came speaking justice into the world. And He will bring justice fully and finally into our world. Now we, what are we to do? We, as God's people in the world, we have an opportunity to act. We are to see what Jesus did and do likewise. We, we follow Christ into our world. We lend our voice to the chorus of justice. We sing a song of healing. And we lift up a cry longing for a world made new. Our world is full of Ruths. Our world is full of Ruths and we have a chance to become a Boaz. You can be a Boaz this week for someone in this world today. So look around. Pay attention. Who has God placed before you? What small thing can you do with great love today? Maybe write that down. What small thing can I do with great love this week? We are shaped in worship and we are sent on mission to show God's love in the world and to make healing and to make the healing and reconciling ministry of Jesus visible in our world. I'm going to say that again because it's important. We are shaped in worship and sent on mission to show God's love in the world, to make the healing and reconciling ministry of Jesus visible in our world. So what will that look like in you this week? It matters. And it makes all the difference for somebody. So may we all be faithful this week. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for the story. I thank you for how Scripture so masterfully saves this, this, th these stories for us. And how these small, local, subtle stories, like the one we find between Boaz and Ruth and Naomi, they point our imaginations toward that bigger, cosmic meta-narrative, that big story of what you've done for us through Jesus Christ. God, thank you that you didn't leave us exposed and vulnerable and fending for ourselves in a broken world a place that's so lacking in love. But you came into the world incarnating love, enfleshing love and mercy. And you came, you called us close, you spread your garment of righteousness over us, and we thank you for that. God, I pray that we would understand deeply that we're a redeemed people, and we didn't deserve it. That in your kindness you came, and you called us close, you made us your bride, and you gave us a home. So God, I pray that we would have a spirit of gratitude in that, but also in a sense of urgency to go and tell others. Because our community is still full of Ruths. 
And it's still full of opportunities for your people to be Boaz, to call people close to the saving message of Jesus Christ, to His good news. God, I pray for my friends. I pray that we would hear that. We would freshly understand how remarkable it is that you came and you cared enough to do whatever it takes to find us and to give us a home, to heal us and to reconcile us. Thank you for being our kinsman redeemer. Thank you for caring enough. We, oh. Lord, I pray for my friends who've been following Jesus for a long time. I pray that uh, this would uh, just catch our attention in a new way, remind them of the, the sheer gravity of what you've done for us. And God, I pray for those who've never followed Jesus, or maybe they've wandered far away. God, may they hear the, the tones of welcome. You're calling us back to you. And when we come back to you, we're being sent out to, be, uh, to, to, to just herald justice in the world, to tell of what you've done and to speak of what's possible and to see signs of healing and wholeness take root in our place, in our time. Thank you for Jesus. It's in his name that we pray these things. Amen. Today we're going to share communion together. And uh, Curtis and Kendi are going to help uh, distribute the uh, elements. There's one back at the little crossroads there, and there's one up here, a basket. What we're going to do is we're going to just enter into a time of reflection and preparation. And then uh, when you're ready... Uh, we are going to, uh, if you're in the back half of the room, you can go back there and, and uh, serve yourself. Go ahead and grab it, take it back to your seat, and then I'll give further instructions. But it's appropriate for us to enter into a time like this with an introspective heart, with a willingness to communicate uh, with God Himself through Jesus Christ. Say, search me and know me. Remind me of where I've been this week. Make me aware of all the ways that I've needed you. Let me bring all those things to you, all my broken places, all the sins that beset me, and lay those before you because we need to be reminded that we need Jesus. And this is the perfect example of how He came close and cared for us. He entered into a broken, loveless world to bring healing and to show true love. And so in his body that was broken and in his blood that was shed, this becomes a living picture of how he came to be our kinsman redeemer, to draw us close and to make us his bride, to make us become his church. And so if you follow Jesus, if you trusted Jesus, even though you feel like you may be imperfect, <laughs> you maybe need to do a, have a do-over or something, it's all about Jesus and what He's done for you. It's not about your righteousness or your ability to get it right. If you've followed Jesus, if you've oriented your heart toward Him, and you said, save me, show me your kindness, this is for you. We come in remembrance to remember the great sacrifice He made for us in His life, His death, and His resurrection. So when you're ready, please come and be served. And then, like I said, hold on to it and we'll partake together.